Welcome to St. James Lutheran Church and School right here in the heart of Chicago. I pray that you find hope and peace in the message of Christ and Him crucified for you in your life right now. Thank you for listening. And please, if you'd like to support the mission going on right here, uh, please go to our webpage, stjames-lutheran.org to donate. Thank you. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Heavenly Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. I always think during Holy Week, also after Easter, the post-Easter time, uh, it's best to approach these stories through the lens of how the apostles would have experienced them, right? To try to put ourselves in their shoes and understand these events as they unfold uh, and see them as they would have seen them, that sort of idea, right? And I think that uh, through that concept, through that idea, we can sort of get to the heart of what, yes, both, both Holy Week and also the post-Easter time are really all about. And today, we get an invitation to do that through the lens of two people, right? Through Peter and through Thomas. And I think what's great is to kind of pair them alongside one another, because both of them, put it charitably, we might say, are sort of uh, characterized by their spiritual wrestling, right? Uh, That's putting it nicely. We might also say they're kind of characterized by their crisis of faith, right? By their spiritual crisis that they have as a result of what they saw, what they experienced during Holy Week uh, in terms of Jesus' crucifixion and then later his resurrection. So I think that Thomas and Peter can sort of be our stand-ins, almost uh, uh, our twin, right? Thomas is called the twin, as we sort of look through these, these stories. So think for a moment, back to Holy Week, the trajectory of Peter's faith, his life in general, right? What's Peter known for? Peter is known for, during Holy Week, his utter abandonment of Jesus, right? He's kind of struggling with what Jesus is about to do, right? He kind of resists the idea that Jesus should be arrested and later tried for uh, crimes that he did not commit, right? And then later on, when push comes to shove, right, he abandons Christ totally. He denies even knowing Jesus, not once, not twice, but in fact, three times, right? That threefold denial means he totally cut ties. He denies ever having been associated with Jesus. And yet when we get to the epistle lesson for today, uh, and also our reading from Acts, we see the total opposite, right? Where did that Peter from Holy Week go? All of a sudden, Peter is now this bold confessor of the, the church, right? He's living up to his name, right? Peter means rock, right? This rock man is suddenly giving this rock solid confession of the faith. And in fact, listen closely to what he does in Acts. In Acts, he's giving this sermon and it's to a very hostile audience. So what does he say? He says, the God of our, or rather, sorry, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. That's bold language from Peter, right? He's like really sticking it to this group, right? That he was crucified because of you, and yet now he's raised for the forgiveness of sins. So he is not pulling his punches at all in terms of his sermon, in terms of his like homiletical tools, right? And the text ultimately underscores that Peter has really become this great confessor. The cowardly Peter is gone in his place. 
is this person who's ready to stand up for the gospel, to preach Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins. There he is standing in all of his glory. And we might think, looking at the two characters, that they're almost completely different people, right? In terms of the content of their lives, the language they use, the message they deliver, etc. And I want us to keep that in mind. There is a paradigm shift here. The Peter of Holy Week is gone. In his place is a new Peter, a new person, we might say. Why is that? Why is Peter totally changed post-resurrection? That's what we're going to find out. Our gospel lesson asks the same question of us, right? Thomas is also uh, known for, like Peter, perhaps being faithless, right? We know that term, doubting Thomas, right? That's kind of part of our vernacular, right? And that's ultimately what Thomas does, right? But I, he doubts the, the news of the resurrection. But I do have a problem with that, right? Because I think what Thomas is doing is very natural for us, right? Thomas is confronted with news that's so good, he doesn't know what to do with it, right? He says, unless I see it, unless I get the proof of the resurrection in this very detailed way, there's no way that I can possibly believe that this is true. And what's interesting, right, is that ultimately... That spiritual struggle, I feel like when we talk about it, it's sometimes dismissed, right? But Thomas is very similar to us, right? We all have those moments of spiritual doubt. We all have those expectations for our lives, those expectations for what God will do. And Thomas isn't rewarded for that, right? Seemingly at first, right? And similarly, we might find ourselves in that position. If life doesn't pan out the way that we want it to, we might have doubts that we wrestle with. So what's interesting then is the way that Jesus responds to this, right? Responds to this person who followed him all the way to Jerusalem only to see his teacher put to death in this public, shameful way, right? The crucifixion was and is. So let's think about that. Thomas is experiencing a time of crisis, He's in a period of what we would say is disorientation, right? The things that he thought were true are now being called into question, right? Surely he thought Jesus was going to be the Savior. He had seen Jesus do so many amazing things, perform miracles, raise Lazarus from the dead, right? All of these things, teach with authority, right? Forgive sins, all these things that a normal teacher couldn't and wouldn't do. And now, with that in mind, Thomas is struggling given that a very different reality unfolded than what he expected. This great teacher, miracle worker, savior, did the one thing that saviors weren't supposed to do, and that's die on a cross. So think about that. Think about that when you're in your own moments of doubt, of uncertainty, of crisis, so to speak, right? I think we all worry about the future instinctively, right? We worry about Uh, decisions we make. We worry about the path and trajectory of our lives, right? Um, Think about this in a personal way. You tell yourself a story about what the future holds. Maybe you've started a new job and you've told yourself a story about what that's going to look like, right? Maybe uh, you're worried for your children, right? That they're going to get into good high schools and good colleges. You've told yourself a story there that you've hung your hopes on in terms of what the future will hold in that case, right? Whatever it is that you hope for, when that all of a sudden falls through, suddenly everything gets called into question. Suddenly who we are, our identity changes when our hopes have fallen through. And so Thomas, I think, echoes our own response to that situation. When our hopes fall through, what do we do? We turn in on ourselves and we push other people away. Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, 
put my fingers there, place my hand into his side, I cannot believe because my hopes have been crushed. And listen carefully to how Jesus responds. I think this is so key because the way that we respond to spiritual doubt and spiritual wrestling has all the meaning in the world for those who are going through it. You see, Jesus doesn't, you know, slam Thomas for his doubt, right? He doesn't crush him underneath the hammer of the law or something like that, right? Instead, Jesus responds in a pastoral and, I would say, amazing way. Listen to what it says here in our gospel text. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came, stood among them, and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answers, My Lord and my God, which is one of the most beautiful confessions of faith that you will find in the New Testament. You see, in the midst of Thomas's doubt, his wrestling, his anxiety, his crisis, right, Jesus comes bearing a message of peace, as he always does after the resurrection. Shalom, peace be with you. The peace of God is now in the very person of Christ, and he comes bearing it to the people who are in doubt and distress like Thomas. You see, Jesus shows Thomas his hands and his side to show that he's really risen from the dead, that the resurrection is something that we can believe. And because the resurrection is real, it creates a new reality. The disciples are gathered together on the eighth day. The eighth day is biblically significant for so many reasons, but chief among them is that the eighth day symbolizes new creation. If you look back historically, oftentimes children would be baptized on the eighth day, right, to symbolize that they are a new person, a new creation, to confess that even in the way we carry about kind of simple church business, right? So here they are on the eighth day, a new people. Why? How? because they're grounded in the reality of a resurrected Christ Jesus. They gather in a congregation that's founded on that reality, whether they know it or not, as Thomas is about to receive. So the resurrection is really key, right? And I would say it's key because it kind of unfolds in this interesting way, right? It changes the past, the present, and the future. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is that the resurrection is a historical reality, right? It's a reality in the past, the past action, right? Something that we can believe. There's evidence for it, right? You can go through the fact that we have witnesses, that there is no body, that the tomb is empty, et cetera, et cetera. You can go through all of those kinds of things. But unlike history, it doesn't just stay there, right? It doesn't stay there in the past like a beautiful portrait, just kind of looking at it, right? Instead, it creates new realities in the present moment, right? This past action, the resurrection, now brings peace, the peace of God into our present moment, knowing that our sins are forgiven, knowing that we are once again brought into fellowship with God, our Heavenly Father. And now the resurrection changes our future as well. You see, now we are future, or rather we are hopeful people, right? Knowing that if Jesus is risen, that we too will rise again. This is what St. Paul says in Romans 6, right? That we are baptized into Christ's death and his resurrection, So there it is, past resurrection, influencing our present moment with the peace of God, pointing us forward to a future hope that ultimately then makes us a people who are able to care for one another, to forgive one another's sins. Why? Because the big stuff is taken care of, right? You are alive in Christ, in fact. So what better response then can be given than what St. Thomas declares? He just simply says, my Lord and my God. Because Jesus is revealed in all of his glory right there in front of him. Jesus has made himself 
present and gifted Thomas and the other disciples which, with a peace that surpasses all understanding. So what makes these two people, Peter and Thomas, so different from prior to the resurrection to after the resurrection? It has to do with where their hopes are placed. No longer in a murky future, one that can be disoriented, one that can be changed, but in fact their hopes are grounded in an unchanging reality, which is that Christ is risen from the dead, that sin is defeated, that death is crushed, and nothing can rob the Christian of that certainty. You see, in fact, the resurrection undoes the things that we know to be most certain in life. To be a little bit crass about it, we know that, like, what, the two things that are most certain in life are death and taxes, right? Which fits, actually, we're in the midst of tax season. But the point is, right, when Jesus rose from the dead, he changed the things that we know to be true, right? Now, no longer does death have the final say. In fact, life, right, and the love of God wins in the end, right? That God ultimately grants every person new life and changes our reality so that our everyday reality is that we're an Easter people. Our everyday reality is one in which the church breathes life into the world by proclaiming the resurrection of Christ Jesus. But what does that do for us now, right? How does that change our perspective? We know how this changed Thomas and Peter's perspective. And I think this is helpful because John ultimately steps into the gospel text today and tells us why this is so significant, right? Because he says, well, Jesus first says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then to make it more clear, St. John says, these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So the reason why Jesus tells us that we're blessed, objectively blessed, is because as hard as it is to believe, we've actually received the greater gift than Thomas has, which is maybe like a bold claim, right? Because we all want to be able to speak face to face with Jesus, of course. But the point is, we've heard the gospel. We've heard these words of life that the gospel authors have recorded for us. And in so doing, we have received life itself through faith in Christ, right? Faith in Christ and the life that comes from that is not the penultimate point, right? It's not a secondary prize. Instead, Christ Jesus proclaims these words, peace be with you, and they, again, are breathed into our current context so that we might know that even now we are a resurrection people, right? A new people that in fact has life in Jesus's name. So to get back to that story about Peter from before, what changes? Well, everything changes about Peter, about Thomas, because again, they're grounded in the resurrection of Christ. Take it a step further. What does the church now look like grounded in the resurrection of Christ? Well, if you'll notice over the next few weeks in our journey through Acts, which is what our readings kind of follow, you'll see that Peter and the other disciples look a lot like Jesus. What does that mean? They're forgiving sins. They're doing miracles. They're speaking words of life by preaching the cross and the resurrection. In other words, the disciples have become little Christs, right? Following their good shepherd's example and in so doing, binding up the wounds of the world, caring for those in the midst of spiritual doubt, sharing the hope and the love and the joy of Christ Jesus in their everyday moment. That's exactly what we're called to do today. We are called, like Peter and Thomas and all the other witnesses of the resurrection, we are called to be the body of Christ, the resurrection at work in the world as we share the love of God, as we bind up 
the wounds of those who are hurting, through our mercy work, through our care for our neighbor. And as we ultimately care for those who are in the midst of spiritual distress by bringing them the peace of Christ. I cannot think of a better task or mission to be given. And that's our everyday reality. How do we do that? By, of course, proclaiming that Christ is risen from the dead and thereby giving a hope for the future to a world that is desperately in need of hope. How else do we do that? By caring for people physically through the mercy work that we do, right, of course. And also, I would say, through a living sacramental presence of Christ, reminding the church and also the world that the church is not on its own in this mission. Instead, Christ is very much still present through his words and through the sacraments as we receive his body and blood for the forgiveness of sins. All of these things help to remind us, yes, of what Jesus has done, but also to create a new reality. So now, as we gather together in church, no matter what spiritual stress we're going through, no matter what doubt, anxiety, or crisis we have in our present moment, we can ultimately be joyful and be hopeful. Why? Because we have a risen Savior who even now is in the midst of our burdens, in the midst of our anxieties, taking them upon himself, reminding us that ultimately our burdens, our anxieties, our doubts don't have the final say. And even when we don't believe that, we have a Savior who comes alongside of us through the priesthood of all believers, right, through the the church itself, speaking those words, peace be with you. That's our encouragement for today, to hear God's promises and to continue to receive the peace of Christ grounded on the reality of the resurrection, the present moment of peace that we receive through that being proclaimed to us. And even now, we rest secure knowing that our future hope is grounded in a risen Savior who promises that you too have received new life and will rise again. Amen. Now may the peace that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.